Welcome to the podcast from Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Mackenzie campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Hey, um, t- so today is Father's Day, and I'm excited to be here tonight, but I actually can't wait to be a dad because I, l- I freaking love a good Father's Day joke or a, or a dad joke. My go-to dad's joke is... What do you call a cow with no legs? Ground beef. Okay, that got a better laugh than I thought it would. Um, but there was an absolute ripper at Mackenzie this morning. How did the one-eyed man fall in the well? Oh, he didn't see that well. That was an absolute cracker this morning. I loved it. Um, and as much as I love a good joke, I actually love a good story even more. Uh, a few weeks ago, Mercy and I actually had the privilege of going to uh, Indonesia with a group of interns from my previous role with Churches of Christ, and um, we took five or six of them across there, had a great time, saw some amazing things that God is doing in Indonesia. We started by going to a, a group called Peacemakers, and they would get uh, some uni students who are Muslim, some uni students who are Christians, get them together in one room, and they would study their own scriptures and find a common peace value in the middle. So when we were there, we actually read uh, the Genesis story, the creation story from both scriptures, and we both realized in that, in that meeting time that God cares for the creation he made. What a great peace value. Um, there's some other great work going on there as well. Uh, there is uh, an English language class that happens at a university as well, and in that space, they get to read all kinds of stuff and learn language, but they actually practice their language by telling their stories and their testimonies and reading the Bible. It's pretty cool. We um, had one of our young guys was actually there having this really deep conversation with a Buddhist uni student in Indonesia. And out of the blue, this student, this Indo- the Indonesian student goes, I just wish that in my religion I had stories of, and stories of a God who would know that I'm loved. What an amazing breakthrough from a conversation. Of just one small conversation they had, he was yearning for and looking for a conversation about a God who would respond and speak back and be intimate with his life. Um, we also did cool practical things like pack Bibles that were written in language that Muslims will understand. Uh, they, one of the big blockages over there is they get scripture and it's in different words. Like they don't understand who Jesus is. They, but when they, they read it in their own Muslim contextualized language, they actually go, oh, this makes sense to me. Incredible, great things over there. However, if you were to ask me within the first few days of coming home, hey, Brad, how was your trip to Indonesia? I would have said exactly this. I would have said, Oh, it was good, except for the horrific gastro we all got. And I tell you, it was horrific. About three days before we came home, uh, I came down with the poops. And I can't believe on my first sermon here I'm talking about poop, right? So just don't hold it against me. But I came down, I was two days, for, 20, for 48 hours straight, every waking hour, I was on that toilet. And it was not great. One of the most harrowing experiences of my life, thankfully, God is good. I got healthy the morning we were about to leave. However, three other people came down with it, including my lovely, beautiful wife. At 12 a.m., when we had a 3 a.m. wake-up call, I roll over and Mercer's out of bed. I think, what's that strange? She's in the bathroom, and I immediately think, oh, no. (laughs) We've got a a 3 a.m. wake-up call, a three-hour drive to the airport in like a minivan buses. It's pretty gross. We then have a flight to Bali, like a two and a half hour flight to Bali. We then have a 12 over lay hour in Bali with nowhere to go, nothing to do. No places we booked in a hotel or anything like that. 
and then we've got a five and a half, nearly six hour flight home. And I'm thinking, I was pooping for two days straight. This is going to be the most messy trip I think we've ever encountered in history. It's going to go down in history as the most gross trip we've ever had. Now, as the next least sick person in our minivan, I had the middle seat. Merce was next to me. Another girl was next to me who was also unwell, and the front seat was sick with a person sick as well. I spent that three-hour car trip handing around a sick bag, just one by one, emptying out the window, one by one. It was pretty gross. That story may be a bit more fun, but it honestly, it tainted the, the story that I tell about our Indonesian mission trip. It was an amazing trip. God did some incredible things, but the story is tainted by what happened to us, the things that happened to us and the things that came out of us, which is a little bit of a shame. And I wonder if we have stories that are tainted by some stuff. There's some good stuff going on in our own lives, but it gets tainted by the things that happen to us. And we, 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 get, we ask about, what is your story? And you go, well, it's pretty good, except for all these things here. And I actually wonder if the disciples felt this way in the days immediately after Jesus' death. He gets put to death, and then he's gone. All the good stuff that he had done, all the great stuff that they'd been then engaged with in Jesus for three years of ministry, down the pooper, down the toilet, down the train. Um, the horror and despair and confusion they would have felt would far outstrip the pain, horror, and confusion that I felt about my own trip coming home from Indonesia. But what I would love us to do is, in this week between our encounter series, or it's kind of the last week of our encounter series before the parables start, I would love us to look at one final encounter of Jesus. So if you have your Bible there, we're turning to Luke chapter 24 from verse 13. Now, I want to do something a little bit different tonight. I want to read this whole story in its entirety. Because the story itself, I want it to wash over you. I want you to, to think as you're hearing the words and reading the words on the screen, place yourself in the story and think about what are the sights, smells, sounds, feelings you would have felt as if you're walking on this road with the disciples. So it's, it's Luke chapter 24, starting from verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had just happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. <clears throat> but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the things the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village where they were going, Jesus acted if he was going to go on further. 
But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So Jesus went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked on the road, and he opened the scripture to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, and there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together saying, it's true, it's true. The Lord has risen, he has appeared to Simon. Then the two told him what had happened on the way to Emmaus and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is actually one of my favorite stories in scripture. Um, and I wanna help us set the scene really well. We're gonna, we're gonna break it down because there are four distinct scenes tonight. The first scene begins with now that same day. It's the same third day of Easter when we celebrate Easter Sunday morning. Uh, the morning where the faithful women disciples ran to the tomb to see, to care for Jesus' body, and he's gone. Visions of angels, empty tomb, just the linen there. And then they go back and tell the guy disciples, and they don't believe them. Jumps. <laughs> they don't believe them. So Peter goes to see for himself, and all he finds is the linen wrapped in the tomb. That's the day we're talking about. This same day, these two people are leaving Jerusalem. And, and who are they? Well, we don't only get one of their names, Cleopas. Now, I could be saying this totally wrong. It's like me saying avocado toasters, avocado toast, you know? I could be, yeah, his name could be Cleopas or Cleopas or whatever. I don't actually know. However, it sounds suspiciously close to the people mentioned near the end of John's gospel. See, in John chapter 19, it describes those who are with Jesus at the crucifixion. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So theologians like N.T. Wright suggest that these two disciples who are leaving Jerusalem could be this husband and wife couple who are leaving the city. And we actually don't get any more information than that. Luke doesn't tell us where, uh, why they're going or what their agenda is or why they've left Jerusalem. Maybe after all the things that have just happened in the last few days, they've left in fear. Maybe they're leaving in despair. Maybe they just don't know what to do anymore, so they go to the place that's most familiar to them. This scene has a distinct mood, and you can feel it if you, if you read it. Their eyes are downcast on the road. They're standing here like this. Have you ever been on a, on a road where you're just not even thinking about stuff, and you're fo so focused on the things in front of you that you walk into walls, like I did this afternoon? Totally kicked my toe. There are so many times in our life where things get overwhelmed, like this couple. They're focused deep on the road. They're in despair. They're almost shutting out everything else around them, and then suddenly Jesus appears among them. And they talk about all the things that are going on in their life. Uh, their eyes are downcast. And you can imagine that the things they're saying about all the things that have just happened, wave after wave after wave of anguish, wave after wave of doubt, confusion, hurt, and pain would all be there. Surely he was the one. Surely he was the one who would set Israel free and make everything right. How could they possibly have been so mistaken? And how could this, this confusion is worse because of the vision of angels and the fact that his body's not there? It's just confusing to them. It's merely a disturbing extra puzzle piece on top of it all that doesn't make any sense and makes the situation worse for them. And they're spiraling, spiraling, spiraling into their situation. And they're just looking straight down on the road to Emmaus. They're feeling sad, let down, and angry. They're embodying the lament from Psalm 42 that says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I walk about mournfully because the enemy oppresses me? 
Each word drives them deeper and deeper into despair. And I wonder if we have stories like this. I wonder if we have stories of bitter disappointment and resentment in our lives where each word we say or thought is like poison to our souls and we spiral down further and further. In this moment of despair, Jesus appears. Now, they don't recognize him. Suddenly, a stranger appears to them. And I can't help but wonder if he somehow seems a bit familiar. Surely, if they've been walking with Jesus for some of that three-year journey that he's walking along, they're walking down so focused down here that they would recognize this guy, but they don't because their eyes are so much on the road in front of them. He asked them, what's going on, guys? What are you talking about as you go along? And you can imagine the tone of the disciples right here. Are you kidding me? Don't you read the news? Don't you know the things that have been going on around here in these days? Have you been living under a rock, mate? Seriously, don't you know all the things that have been going on around here? Don't you know what's going on, the things that are going on for us? Don't you know what we're going through right now? And in one of the most profound words that I think Jesus ever says, he listens to them in their anguish and their frustration. And he goes, what things? And I can't help but imagine, or I want to imagine that Jesus has some kind of smirk on his face, the kind of smirk your dad gets when he says, oh yeah, tell me more about that thing you just told me about that I've known about for 60 years. Um, There's a smirk that Jesus goes, but what things? Maybe that's the case. Because he's the one who knows the things. He's the one who was literally hanging on that cross three days earlier, taking on all the sin and shame of the world and all the frustration they had, making the promises of Israel fulfilled. He's holding there all of it on the cross. And here they are saying, that guy let us down. He knows the things. The things are about him. He knows intimately their pain, their frustration, the, 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 the betrayal of friends, the, the being abandoned and alone. He knows all of it. He knows every single second of it. But he is there, standing right in front of them. If only they had eyes to see the risen Jesus amongst them, they would have seen him properly. But they didn't. They were focused on their stuff. So Jesus comes in and asks honestly with what must be a heart of compassion, more than the cynicism I brought earlier, and says, just tell me what things are going on for you. He steps in their story and says, what things? Tell me. Tell me what's going on for you. It's this moment that reminds me reminds us that Jesus knows even better than you do the things going on in your life. We all have things in our life that steal focus from Jesus, whether it's pressures of study and work, whether it's keeping enough money coming in to pay our bills, whether it's doubts and worry and anxiety that steal our focus and steal our joy. Sickness can make us retreat into our own bodies and our own circumstance with eyes down on about our our, our physical health and trying to get better that way. And carrying offense makes us focus squarely on what I'm owed or what I didn't get or what I deserve. Unforgiveness limits our view of hope and binds us in the past hurts. And yet Jesus is here walking alongside them and he's literally experienced all of this as he held it on the cross for each and every one of us. He's doing it for these two disciples and they miss it. In all of these situations and more, when our eyes are downcast, focused solely and squarely on our own situation. On our own sin, Jesus still walks beside us like he did with those two disciples on the road, step by step, reminding us of who he is and who we are, that we are loved, forgiven, and free. He reminds you that you are not abandoned, that you are not alone. And all the things that weigh you down, that keep your eyes downcast, he is there in it with you. 
the Jesus who was abandoned and was alone on the cross will never abandon you because he ultimately knows what it's like more than any of us could possibly imagine. He walks alongside you even in this very moment and he calls us to lift our eyes to him. Now, all these things will still be on the road, stubbing our toes as we walk along, I'm sure. Circumstances may not necessarily change. Seeing more of Jesus doesn't automatically cure cancer, although miracles can happen. Uh, Seeing more of Jesus doesn't automatically put money in your bank account for you or take away your questions or quell your fears. But what it does do is lift our eyes in trust to see the one who has been perfecting our story all along, to see the one who is calling us to see more of the journey than our immediate circumstance, to see further down the road and lift our eyes in hope and trust to him. He calls us into that story. All of this is to say that we are all simply loved, forgiven, and free through the one who walks with us all the time. But the story keeps going on. If that wasn't enough, (laughs) the story keeps going on. In scene two, it's here we see the two disciples who've explained all this stuff to Jesus, going, come on, mate, you've got to know this stuff. They're explaining it all to him, and they still don't recognize him because they're so focused on their things. They're so focused on the words, we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. Their picture of a redeemed Israel was for the long-awaited Messiah to come and overthrow with the sword, to chop down Israel's enemies and place Israel as the king of all creation, to make Israel the, the most prominent and most holy nation on earth. But God's story was never about Israel beating up their enemies and becoming established as the high and mighty master of the world. It was always, always about the story of how a creator God, Israel's covenant God, would bring his saving purposes for the world to birth through the suffering and vindication of Israel and through the suffering and victory of himself. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, it says, he interpreted to them all the things about himself in the scriptures. Now, what a sermon to be a part of, right? That's the sermon I want to be a fly on the wall to. Jesus himself talking about all the things in scripture concerning him. What an, hearing it from the horse's mouth. What an amazing sermon that would be. He was the one who had done for Israel what the entire world could not do, what Israel couldn't do for themselves. He's done what none of us can do for ourselves, brought salvation through his life, his death, and his resurrection. As Jesus continues to speak, they begin to realize that this new world order does not look what they thought it would. Now, everyone benefits from the good news, not just Israel. Now, everyone also gets to be its ambassadors and witnesses as well. They had hoped for a conqueror, but Jesus reminds them that the Messiah is more than a conqueror. He's a servant, a savior king. And we get the words from from Paul in Romans 8. Now in all these things, we too are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor any height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. They're hearing this story and their hearts begin to stir. Something happens to them as they're walking along. Their eyes just begin to lift a fraction as they hear this story playing out amongst them. That They are not just supposed to be the chosen ones, but he, the chosen one who is walking alongside them, but they don't yet know, is calling them into a new lifted eyes kind of life. A life that brings healing to all nations, not just their own. In this second scene, we are reminded that not only is Christ here with us in the midst of our things, 
but that Jesus offers gentle rebuke, conviction, and correction through the truth and power of Scripture. He reminds us to have eyes open to see the whole world, to see the story that culminates in his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus beckons us, even here tonight, to fall into step with him on the road and allow his story to guide our thoughts and direct our actions. Not only to see more of him, but to see him do more than we could possibly hope for. When the story of these two disciples, what it tells us is that real encounters with Jesus happen, even when we don't see it or recognize it as him. But before you know it, the two disciples arrive where they're going. We're into the third scene. They've been on the road. Suddenly their eyes are up. They're looking around. Life's a bit different. They understand life's a bit different in here now because of what they've heard on the road. And they say, we've loved this time with you, stranger. Come with us. Come have dinner with us. Come and share this accommodation with us. Come and share more of the story. We are loving this. I can't help but when they invite him in, surely they'll go, Jesus, but not yet. Surely when they're sitting at the dinner table uh, and they're eating, they will be reminded. Surely when they start to remember other meals they'd shared together, like that bread and fish picnic where 5,000 people were miraculously fed, or that time maybe a few nights before where the disciples were gathered in the upper room and they broke bread and he said, this is my body and my blood poured and broken for you. Maybe they would remember, but not yet. It's not until they actually sit down and Jesus breaks the bread and the flesh of the crumbs tinkle on the table that that it's then when their eyes are opened. It's the breaking of the bread that does it. It's when he breaks the bread that they are brought back from the shadows of death they had been experiencing and they realize that life has won. Resurrection life that Jesus provides had won. He was sitting there with them. He was the one they'd hoped for, and he was sitting there with them right there, sharing the meal. They recognized it for the first time, that they would never have experienced that unless he came and walked with them, even in their darkest hour. There's something about inviting someone to eat that talks of kinship, relationship, and family. And it's not until that familiar meal, the returned relationship, the restored hope found in community with Jesus, that their eyes are opened and they recognize him. And he disappears from their sight, immediately after that. Now, not only are their bellies full, but their hearts are full of hope and wonder about all that Jesus is, all of who he is. See, Jesus serves them in their time of need and reveals himself when they are in relational community with him and with one another. This is why life groups and coming to church is so important because there are no lone gun Christians. We can't walk this journey on our own because our eyes will just stay downcast. We'll have our eyes so focused squarely on the road in front of us. We actually need to come into and invite people into our life, into our story, as well as the Savior King who loves us in community and our eyes lift and our hearts and bellies both become full and we see more of who God calls us into being. But the story doesn't quite end here. The story could end, happy ending, great. Disciples are full, fell, uh, full Full bellies, full spirits, full hearts, full hope. They're ready to go. That's it. But scripture tells us that they sprint immediately back. They sprint immediately. They've reached the end of the day. They've gotten to where they're going to. Must be close to dusk at least. And they sprint immediately back to Jerusalem. 11 kilometers journey. That's a pretty long run. That's like two and a bit park runs. I've never done a park run. But two and a bit park runs from what I understand. That's a long way. 
a long way to just sprint immediately back to the community from which they came, back to a place that they thought was in despair because they had good news on their lips. They wanted to share it. They immediately return to Jerusalem and they get together with their ragtag rebels, the other guys who were at this, that communion dinner, at the supper where they broke the bread and say, hey, we found him. He is alive. He is the one who was promised. He has done exactly what he said he was going to do. We've seen him. And to their surprise, the 11 go, yeah, you're right. He's already come to see us. I wonder if those guys were a bit disappointed. Oh, we didn't have the only revelation of Jesus. I reckon the hearing that good news would have set their hearts alight that this resurrected Jesus who's defeated death, defeated every situation going on, was there present with them. And we read in other scriptures later, he just kind of walks through a wall and goes, hey, I'm here. What's up? Let's eat. That community life that he's calling us into is pretty cool. Those ragtag rebels, deniers, betrayers, doubters, terrorists, they became the start of the early church. All because they ran back to their communities when they had every right to run away. They had every right to flee for their lives because they didn't know what was going to happen next. They'd been so let down, so hurt by the things on their journey, on their road, they could just flee, but they don't. They run back to their community. They run back to the people they'd done life and ministry with. They ran back. And because of that, we have the church today. Is it perfect? No, because it was founded by ragtag rebels who were liars, cheaters, betrayers, deniers, terrorists. Is the church perfect? No, but it's God's plan and purpose to bring healing to the nations with his message on our lips. They came back from Emmaus with the good news on their lips of his resurrected life, new life to step into. That's our call today as well. We say here at church, everyone who comes through our doors is welcome, and I truly believe this. This is a place of welcome, and it's actually part of my own story. I'd finished up at a placement at another church and I was looking around for a church to belong to because I just wanted to sit in the pew for a while and as I was looking for other jobs and whatever else. And I came here and I immediately felt like this was a place where people belonged. And I hope that's your experience here tonight too. And our amazing welcome teams, if you're on the welcome team, I just want you to chuck your hand up. If you're on the welcome team, these guys need a bit more help, I reckon, because they do a great job of welcoming us. Can we give them a massive round of applause? Because... They are welcoming people and they have the face of welcome. However, it's not their job to do that. They're on a roster, sure, and they're great at it, sure. It is our job to be a welcoming, belonging community of Jesus that welcomes everyone through our doors. But beyond that, when we leave these doors tonight, when we go into the neighbor's doors, our neighbors or our workplaces, we walk through every door we go into, are we bringing the welcome and the good news of Jesus through every door we go into? Do we bring that belonging and that welcome those disciples felt when they rushed from Emmaus back to Jerusalem to their family, the place they belong to? Are we bringing that same welcome through every door that we walk into when we leave this place? Imagine what the world would look like if we, each and every one of us, and every other person sitting in a pew in every other church on a Sunday decided we would walk through doors and bring the good news because we can't help but talk about how good it is. Imagine what the world would look like. There is some responsibility with that. If we fall into step with our servant, Savior, Jesus Christ, we can't help but have this same vision of what the good news and gospel looks like. It looks like the incarnate Jesus, the one who made his life in the midst of ours, on the road, every step of the way. We have to do the same thing. Step into step with our friends who are doing it tough. Step into step with our friends or even our enemies who are doing it tough. For every person that seems lost, every person that has their 
eyes downcast on the road. Because of their faithfulness, many people have been saved through the work of Jesus in the church. We step into that same story in that same family. Our mandate as the church is to run at once immediately to the places we're called to. Our homes, our neighbours, our workplaces. As we wrap up tonight, I just want you to see the progression of these four scenes. The disciples have their eyes downcast on the road. It's all they can see. And then Jesus comes and walks along beside them. And they don't recognise him because they're so focused down here. It's just a stranger beside them. They keep on walking. And suddenly he tells them about himself. He tells them about all the good things that he is, that, that, that scripture is full of stories and wonder about the Jesus who was supposed to come and, and is here, but they still don't have eyes to see it. And they get to the place and they run it, they go into a community with Jesus in that deep relationship of, of eating a meal together, sharing the stories after having been encouraged by him. And their eyes are up here, but they still don't recognize him until they break the bread and the crumbs fall down. They're nourished by more than the bread in that stage. And from there, they have the energy, not just because they've eaten bread, but they've been filled from the inside out with the Holy Spirit to run into their community and their place. Can you see the progression from down to up here? For us too, every single one of us will find times when our eyes are downcast because things happen. It's the nature of our broken and fallen world. Things happen. Things happen. But in the midst of our things, Jesus comes and says, what things? Tell me about it. Share your life with me. Let's share in all of this together. The disciples at the beginning of this story are very different than the disciples who finished it. They're transformed by the present power of Jesus in their life. And even though they don't recognize it, he's still there. And I wonder tonight if there are people in the room who can't recognize Jesus because we're so focused on our stuff. There are times in my own life when I'm so focused on the things that have been done to me, the things in my life that I can't control, that I lose sight of the life that God calls me into, or the cards we've been dealt, or the fears or doubts that we all have. But Jesus enters the story, He enters your story here tonight. And He doesn't want you to stay that way. He doesn't want you to stay downcast. He invites you into full life. John 10 verse 9 tells us, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and they will go out and they will find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Hear Jesus' words about this eternal invitation tonight. Come and join my story. Come and fall into step with me that you might have life through his life, death and resurrection life. The invitation is an eternal invitation. Tonight, I wonder if there are people in the room who need to respond to this invitation that will always, always be there because Christ is beyond it all. But tonight, there might be people in the room who for the first time are saying, actually, I need to give my life to Jesus because I can't keep carrying these burdens on the road that focus me and weigh me down. I can't do it anymore. I can't hold that burden anymore. The eternal invitation is there for you tonight. The invitation to let Jesus carry your burdens. And even when it feels like we've been abandoned or you've been left alone, you're not because Jesus is right here with you. If you've ever wondered if God loves you, 
And if you can trust him with your pain and your brokenness, then the cross of Jesus is the place you can always look. Because it's there that once and for all, God declares his love for you. He declares his love for me, for you, for everyone that he would endure that kind of pain and suffering for you. If you ever think that God doesn't know what you're going through, if you ever can't experience or doesn't know, understand or, or, or get what you're going through, remember this, that he has never missed a single beat of your life. He has never missed a beat of the pain or frustration or anger that you have. He's held it there for us on the cross. He held it for every, every single one of us. days later and says what things step in fall into step with me so tonight I'm not going to ask people to close their eyes because what I love about this congregation at 6pm is that we are a family every time we have people come down the front people come to pray it's not a pastor's job to come and pray for someone we gather around our people and we pray in community so tonight if you feel like there is stuff going on in your life Jesus is saying, what things? Bring it to me. He's asking, what things do you need to give to me tonight? What sin do you need to drop? What offense do you need to confess? What forgiveness do you need to offer? What illness do you need to bring before the wounded healer? What attitude do you need to surrender? An old, old hymn that I love reminds us well. Well may the accuser roar of of sins that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. But my God, he knoweth none. What things? He's dealt with the things. So tonight, I want to invite you. This is the moment that you feel you've just got to respond to this love of Jesus for the first time. I just want to invite you in this safe space where we are family, just to stand where you are. We would love to pray for you and gather around you. We would love to spend time with you as you make this decision. Is there anyone in the room tonight? There's no judgment or condemnation in this space. We are a family. There's no secret salvation here because we step into a life that God calls us into to enjoy and love into. This is the resurrection life He calls us into. Is there anyone tonight who wants to stand and say, Jesus, I belong to you? I'm not going to keep it open forever. But we're going to keep doing this every week because we believe that Jesus is the ultimate change in a person's life. He changes us from the start of our journey when our eyes are downcast to the very end. He is there through every moment, every second, and every week we'll keep doing this because we believe that Jesus is the best hope for our life. But tonight I do believe that there are people in the room, including myself, all of us really, who just need to hand these things to Jesus. You might call yourself a Christian, have been called a Christian for a long time, but you're struggling with frustrations or doubts or fears. How can I trust what's written in Scripture? How can I experience more of God? How can I forgive that person in my life who has hurt me so much? How can I get rid of this stuff? We've all got things in our life. I actually want to invite us just to stand tonight all together. And there'll be space down the front for us to pray for one another. And I I just want to say, this is a safe space for us to kind of come down and to experience and hand over the things before Jesus and give him all the sin that he says, what things? There's no more left if you give it to me. This space as we sing this song, 
is a space for you to come and hand that stuff over. For us to pray. For us to pray we to gather around you and support you as those disciples did at the end of the story, gathered in their community. So as we sing, we're going to sing. I want to invite this space to be an open space as we sing and hand our things to Jesus. Because he says, what things? Hand it to me. Give it to me. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If you've made a decision to follow Christ or would like us to pray for you, please go to gatewaybaptist.com.au and let us know.